We are in a, we're starting a new series today called Unshakable, Thriving No Matter What Hits You. It's a, a study of the book of Daniel. And um, Daniel is a, is a particularly pertinent book, I think, to where we live today in our culture. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a story about um, uh, the Hebrews uh, being uh, captured in Jerusalem and taken hostage, or if you will, and prisoner back to Babylon and the Babylonian kingdom. And uh, they are people that are living now in a foreign land, and uh, it's about 605 B.C. Most scholars think Daniel uh, pretty much is the author here, and um, when we find the story, we understand that they are not only living in a foreign land, they are living in a foreign spiritual condition. They were members of the kingdom of God, if you will, members of God's people, the chosen uh, Jewish community, and now they were taken from that and exiled into Babylon, where they not only found a kingdom that was different than theirs, it was hostile towards theirs. Babylon was this uh, kingdom that was erected to the uh, glory of man. Can you imagine a society that elevates man above God? It was all about their accomplishments, their power, their authority. From a worldly perspective, if you lived in the time, you would think that uh, this Babylonian kingdom now held all the power. As we go through the book of Daniel, we'll see quite the contrary. And I thought about that, and as we we look at our culture today, I, I think we have to recognize the similarities between Daniel and his and the Hebrew children living here in a foreign uh, spiritual climate, as similar to what we face in our world today, in our, in our country today. I mean, we may not see Christians being thrown into fiery furnaces, at least hope not, or lion's dens, if you will, but uh, would you agree with me that hostility towards Christianity is growing in the culture today? We used to say America was a, had moved from whatever culture it was into the modern world. We called it a modern culture, a growing secularism in America. And then it came to the point where we said, okay, we've moved past that, so now we are in what we call a what? Postmodern, a postmodern culture that uh, just kind of began to say man is king, man is God, man can just... To, can control his own destiny, man can control his own truth, man can control his own identity. And now there's a number of people who say, we've moved past that. I heard a term the other day called post-postmodern. <laughs> that we are in an era that even, even removes the limitations that the postmodern philosophy put, and it didn't put many. And so we have this growing, this growing underpinning morality, foundations, norms, values that has become somewhat hostile to our faith. We see our institutions, schools and governments, other institutions promoting anti-biblical worldviews. And they deride the church that will take a stand for biblical truth against these new norms. And uh, to be honest, I would say sometimes the church, Christians really struggle. How do I live in this kind of culture? It's 
changed since I was a kid. It, 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 Christianity and the ways in which it influences a community are not only not as widely present, they are rejected. How do I live in this kind of world? And the Christians a lot of times will either fight back or they'll get so dug into their position that they come off as being mean-spirited and uh, rude even. And uh, Sometimes they just soften it. They just retreat away from the culture and just kind of hole up in their little huddles and just <laughs> hope Jesus comes soon. <laughs> yeah. Or we have sometimes wholesale sellout, and they embrace anti-biblical worldviews and just bring it right into the church. And so how do we live authentically, the real authentic Jesus in a world where it's all about man, man is God? And how can we remain unshakable, and I would even say thrive? Not only in our culture, but in any culture. Let me ask you, should the church, should a Christian person be able to thrive no matter what culture he's dropped into? <laughs> no matter what the prevailing cultural acceptance of their faith is, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have a firm foundation in Him, there is a thriving spirit that lives in us no matter what the cultural backdrop is. We have a lot to learn from the book of Daniel. The first few verses set the stage. Let's look at them. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. I practiced that. Jehoiakim. King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Verse 1 establishes the timeline. It's very specific. The third year of the ring of Jehoiakim, which scholars can pinpoint to 605 B.C. Some even go as far as to say I, they believe it was the spring of 605 B.C., in verse 2, we have, a very interesting, um, we have a very interesting phrase, and this phrase really in many ways sets the tone for the entire book. It says that the Lord gave this king of Judah into the hands of the enemy. And it's important because of the word used to describe the Lord God. It, it would, uh, the, the natural expectation would be that the word would be Yahweh. And Daniel does not use that word here. He uses the word Adonai to describe the Lord. Adonai means ruler, authority, sovereign. And when you put that together with the thought that it was the Adonai who gave his people into the hands of the Babylonian king. Daniel is signaling to us that all of this book and what is about to be revealed to you is governed and overseen by the hand of the sovereign God. And there's a lot of prophecy, as we know, in Daniel about the end times. He's setting the stage. He's, he's kind of um, letting us know that when we get into prophetic uh, kinds of descriptions later in the book, that this is God's ultimate plan to be revealed in this writing. 
It may look to the folks that were there during those days that Babylon was in charge. Nebuchadnezzar was in charge of the world. And uh, Daniel's signaling to us that it's just not the case. In these first seven verses, we will get this great picture of what this pagan culture valued. And I would contend culture after culture throughout history has adopted these same characteristics. And I would say even in America today, we see a lot of these kinds of human characteristics penetrating our culture. You see, they wanted to redefine who Daniel and the Hebrews were. They wanted to change his identity from this godly Hebrew to this high-ranking Babylonian serving in the king's court. So I ask myself, does the world want to change or shape or form your identity? Who you are? Our culture talks a lot about identity, doesn't it? It's popular today to, uh, well, let's just let you decide what your identity is. You ever hear that? You get to choose your identity. You... We have made identity not something that God created. We've made identity something that we govern through the choices that we make. And I would ask you, is it true that we have the power to decide identity for ourselves? So who are you? What is your identity? And I think in order to have just really a biblical, healthy answer to the question. We got to look at how the world defines identity. And I don't know if there's a better passage than this first chapter of Daniel to get a glimpse of how the world defines identity in people. It says in verse 2, that they took the vessels of the house of God and brought them into the treasury of their pagan god. They just desecrated what was holy, what God said holy, the tools that had been used in worship in the temple. They went in there and they took the gold and the silver and the utensils of worship and they just says, these have no value except monetary value. They came and threw it in their treasury. Human kingdoms desecrate what God calls holy. Human kingdoms desecrate what God calls holy. Do we see that happen in the American culture? Are there things going on that the American culture says, well, that's not really that big of a deal? And God says, that's a big deal. I made that holy. What about sex? Is sex holy to God? Is it sacred to God? Absolutely. It is absolutely sacred. It is God's gift. To the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And it's not to be used in any other way. When you lose the spiritual sacredness of God's gift, then you lose the parameters that make the gift so sacred. And the world is taking dead aim at it because if it can destroy that, it can destroy marriage, it can destroy the very foundations of the culture. They're taking what God calls holy and desecrating it to where it has no more spiritual meaning in the culture. It's just an act. It's recreational. It's whatever it feels good, do it. 
And since there's been a detachment of God's sacredness upon it, people just identify themselves however they want to identify themselves. They use it however they want to use it because it doesn't matter anymore because it has no sacredness. It is not a godly thing in the eyes of the culture. And if the culture can devalue what God calls sacred in your life, it can redefine who you think you are. We get a great picture of what the world, how the world determines value in the following verses. Look at verses 3 to 5. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. And you can see, you can just see the bullet points in that passage of Scripture of how the world looks at value in human beings, right? First of all, people find identity in outward appearance. It says that these guys, Daniel and the three Hebrew children that came with him, probably all teenagers, probably 14, 15, 16 years of age, probably. It says they were good looking. Mm. Strong. It even goes as far as to say they had no defect. This is something of which I am not familiar with. Let me ask you a question. Does society today favor beautiful people? Does society today overlook not so beautiful people? And I got to tell you, this leads to all sorts of identity problems. Sometimes when I see somebody that's just a beautiful person, I just start praying for them. Oh, my. (laughs) Oh, my. Beautiful people grow up thinking that the world is supposed to treat them a certain way, supposed to be handed to them. If they're not careful with the, the inner identity of who Christ is in them, they can begin to think that they deserve and are entitled and all these kinds of things begin to get into their core and it becomes so much a part of them that they just are shattered if it's not just everything beautifully laid out for them because their identity, who they really think they are, is attached to that. And on the other hand, you have those that will look like me, (laughs) all right? The not-so-beautiful people. And they begin to see signals from people. And they hear these signals from people, and they begin to think, well, I guess I am not deserving, or I guess I shouldn't be selected, or I guess I should be. And they begin to attach their own core identity to the signals that they're getting because of their outward appearance. I'm too fat. I'm too skinny. I don't have enough muscles. I have red hair. (laughs) 
I got to tell you a story. I have a grandson, Atticus. He's four years old. He's got fire engine red hair. I mean, the reddest hair I've ever seen on a kid. And he started pre-K. I thought it was preschool. He corrected me. I'm not going to preschool. I'm going to pre-K. And then the day before he's going to school, he goes to my wife, Cindy. He calls his grandmother Buddy. Okay? Yeah, she's Buddy. He goes, you know what, Buddy? She says, what? She says, when I go to pre-K, the girls are going to love my red hair. I did not make that up. That is honest truth. And I began thinking, I began thinking about that little funny scene in light of this. I began to think. Anytime I mention Atticus, even to any of you, he's the one with the red hair, isn't he? We take Atticus to the store. What does everybody say? Look at that hair. Don't we? We start labeling early in life. I sure pray that my son doesn't grow up thinking his identity is his hair. Don't think about it now. I know what you're thinking. Thank goodness our identity is not our hair. That's all I got to say. Another thing people find their identity in is what they know, right? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar sent them to school. He encouraged them to go to school, and after three years, you're going to serve in my service here. And you think about that in a modern context, people go to school and uh, they get a degree in a certain field, and they're so much invested in it. They've given their, their passion and their time and their money to getting this degree, and, and then they land the job, and uh, they just throw themselves completely in it. And if they're not really careful, they begin to find their identity there, <laughs> because they know that. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a pastor. I'm an engineer. I'm a teacher. And you have to be really careful because even if you love your job, if you attach your identity to it, what happens when you retire? Have you ever known somebody just kind of lost when they're retired? Because everything was wrapped up in the job and what they knew how to do? Now, don't get me wrong. Should people love their jobs? I love my job. I have no idea what Herman was talking about earlier about ministry being difficult, okay? It's a piece of cake, all right? You know? I mean, you only show up on Sunday, right? Yeah, okay, I get it, yeah. Yeah, two hours, right. You only got to talk for 30 minutes twice and you're done, right? I love my job. I love that the Lord has granted such, looked on me with such favor that I've, got, I've gotten to be here 16 years already. I know. I'm just so grateful for that. But you know, someday I'm not going to be a pastor. And life for me is not really going to change because who I am is not this. 
You should be glad for that, actually. <laughs> Who I am is Him. And it always will be that way. And lastly, people find identity in what they do. This was to train Daniel and these other three guys to serve in the king's house, and they were going to be known by that. You are the servants of the king. And I, I got to tell you, it is so dangerous to attach identity to what you do, the role perhaps that you're in right now. My identity, I, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Well, what happens when those kids grow up? I've, I've seen it happen where people, the, the kids grow up and then the empty nest is just hated. I, I don't like this. And they're lost. The Babylonians, not only do they have this kind of resume of what they're looking for, they want to eradicate all semblance of the previous identity. They want to completely remake these guys into their image. And so look what happens in verses six and seven. Now among them were the from the sons of now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. No more Hebrew names. We want you to have Babylonian names. But folks, this is not like today when you go down to the courthouse and say, I don't like that name, I want this name. And sign the papers, pay the money, name change. That's not what this is about. This is about saying we're rejecting all of that and you now must accept this. They weren't just different names. They were names to obliterate their identities. They were a mockery to their heritage. It was taking the truth that those names represented and names meant so much in this day. And they replaced them with idolatrous names. Let's look at them. First name is Daniel. God is my judge is what that means. Belteshazzar, lady, save the king. Talk about some gender confusion there, you know. They changed the gender of the name. And they changed it from an authority, sovereign God to a human effort. Hananiah, Yahweh has been gracious. They changed that to Shadrach. I am fearful of God. And so instead of having a grace-filled God who extends favor to people, now we have a tyrannical God in which we ought to fear. Mishael was changed to Meshach. Mishael, meaning who can compare to my God? No one. Meshach. I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. How would you like that to be your new name? Right? A focus on God to a focus on self, from confidence to cowardice. Azariah, Yahweh has helped to Abednego, servant of Nebo, whoever Nebo is. From a son of the Most High God to a servant of man or a pagan God. I want you to know something today. Satan would love to change your name from what God calls you. 
What you believe about who you really are dictates your behavior, even if what you believe is false. I mean, I could stand here and say, I believe I'm a girl. Just don't put that picture in your mind, please, you know. I could dress like a girl, try to talk like a girl. But at the end of the day, guess what? I'm not one. I can believe a falsehood. I can believe a lie and try to, if that becomes my belief system, it drives my behavior. So what you believe is critical. And believing truth is critical. Chris Hodges writes this, maybe you were labeled stupid or fat when you were a kid. And despite earning a college degree or running 5Ks, you still see yourself based on those childhood labels. He says, perhaps you've let sickness define you. Cancer, diabetes, or MS is not your, only your disease, it's become your identity. Even if you get through it, you still carry it. He says, you might let your relationships define you. You're a husband or a wife or an ex or a sister or a brother or a boss, an employee. He says, perhaps rejection, divorce, betrayal have become your identity. What's happened to me has become my identity. It gets me attention. Satan knows that if he can get you to believe you are something that he says you are, your behavior will follow. And I want you to know, that's why here at Grace Bible Church, um, we don't call people who are redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ, we don't call you sinners. Because if we call you sinners, what are you going to do? If you believe yourself, even after being transformed by the grace of God, to be identified as a sinner, what is that going to reinforce in your life? <laughs> Sin. What are you? Are you a sinner? No. You are a holy one of God. The biblical word is saints. We have saints here today? Amen. That's what the Bible says about you. Now, you can believe it or you don't have to believe it. Well, I wouldn't advise that. Because when you get, begin to believe that you are a saint, not based on what your behavior has been, but based on what Christ has brought into your life, you begin to accept the life of Christ flowing through your life, and you begin to exhibit behavior in line with the saintly, holy Christ who lives in you. Chris Hodges, again, this explains why the number one goal of your enemy, the devil, is to attack your identity. He wants to give you a different name, one that stands in direct contrast to the name God gave you when he redeemed you. If you have made the choice to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is now your life. He is now your identity. <laughs> and we as human beings have a tendency to float back over. How do we define our identity? by what we do. I sin, therefore I am sinner. Oh, I'm a sinner? Well, then sin's natural. See? See the thought? See how it escalates? 
I'm a holy one of God. I'm a child of the king. He has redeemed me. The old is gone. The new has come. I live in Christ in the power of his Holy Spirit. I am a new creation. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. We have an inheritance, right? Heirs of God, fellow heirs with who? <laughs> with Jesus. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified with him. Colossians 3, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In God. Did you know that you have died and the old life, if you are a believer in Christ, is gone? Amen. It has been put on the cross with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is gone. It is no longer who I am. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, couldn't be any more clear than that, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We share in the very nature of the divine. That's who we are. This is who you're not. You are not what you do. You are not what has happened to you. You are not a victim. Amen? You are not a failure. Who are you? You are who God says you are. I say amen. <laughs> you are a beautiful, glorious child of the living God. You are fully loved, fully accepted, completely forgiven, empowered by the presence of His Spirit in you. You are not what others say you are. You are not even what you say you are if it's out of line with what He says because you are who God says you are period. And he says this about you. He calls you beloved, holy, righteous, overcomer, victor, gifted, child of the king. He says you are a saint, blessed, appreciated, saved, reconciled, chosen, and adopted. It says that you are sealed with Christ. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are fully alive, raised up with him. You are his workmanship. And he has brought you near by his blood. You are a citizen of his family. Amen. You are a royal priest, every believer in Christ. And I would contend it is Satan's greatest fear that you start believing that. I was reminded of the story of the Titanic it's, it's more than just a tragedy that happened in 1912. It's a, it's such, there's such revelation of, um, of the human experience in this. Uh, April 10th, 1912, it set sail from Southampton, England, to New York City. And uh, we know that the ship hit the iceberg, and uh, we know that it was not supposed to ever uh, go down. It was an engineering mar marvel, the greatest of its time. And uh, 2,200 people were on board. Four days into it, it uh, hit the iceberg, and 1,500 or so people were, were lost. You know who was on the Titanic? A little bit of everybody. 
The beautiful people were there. The powerful people were there. The normal people were there. That implies that beautiful people can't be normal. No, that's not right, but you know what I mean. The commoners were there. The kitchen staff was there. But what happened after the tragedy, two lists appeared at the home office of the White Star Lines in Liverpool, the maker of the ship. Two lists. And hundreds of relatives would come every day, and uh, friends of Titanic passengers, they wanted to learn the fate of their loved ones, and obviously news didn't travel like it does today. And every day the employee would come out and add to the two lists. And across the top of each list, there was just these simple words, known to be saved and known to be lost. There wasn't any attachment. Well, this duke or this king or this wealthy aristocrat, no. This cook in the kitchen, no. Because at this point, it didn't matter, did it? There's only one thing that mattered. Who was saved? Who was lost? Your status is not what's important. It's not who you are. Your wealth, it doesn't define you. Your job is not the most important thing about you. You are who God says you are. I love uh, Lauren Daigle's new song, You Say. And some of you who know that song are thinking, I wonder when he's going to get to the song. Because <laughs> it just says what it, I've been talking about better than I can. She sings this. I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. You ever been there? I still go there sometimes. You should have preached better. Man, you'd have spent more time. Those people deserve better. I hate to admit that those thoughts can run through my mind. I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? And she's praying, remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I'm strong, I think I'm weak. You say I am held when I'm falling short. And when I don't belong, you say what? I'm yours. And then the best line of the song, oh, I believe. I believe. In other words, all that I'm choosing today, I will believe what he says about me. I believe. And she says, the only thing that matters now is everything you think of me. That's what I'm going to say. That's all that matters. What does God think? In you, I find my worth. In you, I find my identity. 
I want you to bow your heads with me and Father, as we come to you in these closing moments, I, I just I just know from so many conversations with so many people over the years how identity is such a struggle for so many. People who are been walk, who have been walking with the Lord a long time and now find themselves detached from where they used to be and there's just trying to find out who am I? And there's people, Father, who have attached their identity to the pain in their life and, uh, well, I'm, a, I'm an abuse survivor or I grew up in a dysfunctional family and uh, bad things happened, therefore that's who I am. And Father, I am praying for every person here today who, what I say is going through an identity crisis. <laughs> the foundation of the life of Christ and the fullness that you bring to where you, in the search for significance, Father, I pray that they would find that, that they would reject the notion that they are what they look like or what they do or what they know or any of the other names that Satan has given to label them and mark them, Father, may they find freedom in you today to know that uh, it is you and the presence of your Spirit that is the real them. Father, I pray today for the person that may be here today that doesn't know you yet and is just... It's been pulled by this string and this string of the world, and none of them have filled the emptiness that is inside, and they're here today, and I pray that they would make the choice to just believe in you and to trust in you and to receive you and just say, Lord, I'm coming to you. I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you are the payment for the sin in my life. I believe that you are the provider of life. And I'm coming to you today to offer my life to you. I pray that this would be their day, Father God. Father, we are so grateful for the new life that you've given us. It's nothing like the old one. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. We worship you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.
presence. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by you. God, I run into your arms, unashamed because of mercy. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by you. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by you. Amen. 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 I wonder if our prayer team could just be available down here in these front corners if you'd like to pray about anything. Come, grab us. Let's just pray together before you leave about anything. May God bless you as you go from this place today. You are dismissed. Amen.